All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark uh, chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. If you have your Bible, and if you don't have your Bible, let me, uh, haven't done this in a while, but let me challenge you to bring your Bible on Sunday morning, all right? I, I said it for a long time, coming to church without your Bible, at least to Northwest and uh, other churches like us, uh, coming to, to church without your Bible is like uh, going to class without your books, all right? Um, you, you need that uh, uh, there. Uh, you need it in front of you. I, I want you to be, sometimes when I'm in a particular text, it's good for you while you're listening just to look at what's coming before that text, what came after that text, because I might not hit the whole thing. I challenge you to get a good study Bible. If you get a good study Bible, uh, there's good notes that are the, at the bottom of that study Bible. There's a new ESV study Bible that's out within the last few years that is excellent. MacArthur Study Bible, a variety of other study Bibles. Get something like that. Lug it to church with you. All right, you don't need the family Bible off the coffee table or anything like that. But if that's all you have, then uh, put it in a wheelbarrow and bring it with you. But make sure that you have something uh, with you. I want you to bring your Bibles. All right. Well, have you ever had one of those nights I did uh, just this week when you can't get to sleep and so you get out of the bed? And for me, when I get out of the bed, I respect some of you who will go downstairs, turn on a light, and you'll get out a really good book and you'll start reading the book. I'm not like that. I get out of bed and immediately I go to the remote, right? And I turn on uh, the TV. It's 2 a.m., you turn on the TV to see a zillion infomercials, uh, the the must-have items, ridiculous items, but you must have them. And especially as it gets on toward about 3 a.m., 4 a.m., you are really starting to buy in the idea that you, your life might change if you get one of these uh, particular things. Uh, you see those infomercials, and you've lived without this for a long time, but at 4 a.m., for whatever reason, you're starting to think maybe that's what you're missing. Maybe if you just had that particular things, that things would be better in your life. Uh, this week, I read uh, a list of the most popular infomercials of all time, all right? And because you're here this morning, I'm going to give them to you. Drum roll, please. Number one was the Ginsu steak knives. Now, admit it, how many of you bought the Ginsu steak knives? All right, Bill King. And, and I will have to say this, I did as well. We, we, right after we were married, we bought a set of Ginsu steak knives, and they really did work well. You remember, this was the knife that could cut through a tin can and then it could cut through a tomato, a fresh tomato, just like it was butter. If you miss the Ginsu knives, by the way, sometimes if you go into those old hardware stores, in fact, I think if you go over to Carpenter Farm Supply, right in the back there with all the stuff that's got dust on it, you'll probably find some Ginsu steak knives, so you can still get those. Number two was the Jack LaLanne Power Juicer. Anybody remember that? You'll look and feel better just by squeezing some fruit and vegetables. I wish it were that easy. Uh, that you just simply squeeze them, you drink it, and you'll feel better. And then, let's not forget recent years, the Snuggie. The Snuggie. It's an oversized fleece blanket with sleeves. Let me just tell you right now, if you ever see me in one of those, please shoot me, all right? I need to be shot. I've come to the end. I've lost it. If I'm in a Snuggie, shoot me. Then there was Miss Cleo's psychic hotline. If you call this 900 number and you spend $4.99 a minute, you can get a glimpse into your future. Even as I'm saying these things, I'm thinking maybe I should do infomercials. Maybe this would be a good thing. Uh, number five, sweating to the oldies. 
All right, I'm not going to ask you how many of you purchased that, but I bet there's some of you in here that you did that. You'll remember workout guru, he's still alive, by the way, Richard Simmons, a former overweight kid who lost 100 pounds, said he can show you how just by dancing and sweating to the oldies, you can take the pounds off. And he did so in a tank top and short shorts. Let that simmer in your mind for just a moment on this rainy Sunday morning. Uh, Number six was Tony Little's Gazelle. You remember it it featured fitness pro Tony Little who trotted away on his exercise machine called the Gazelle. I actually uh, have a friend who uh, was friends with him. I don't know how a friend of mine could be a friend of this gentleman, but uh, the gazelle was pretty popular. And then here's one that my sister-in-law bought into. I I remember because I got it for Christmas one year. It was the magic bullet. Anybody have the magic bullet? Now, this was actually a good thing. The magic bullet whips smoothies and grinds coffee and it mixes muffins. And every dish is perfectly prepared in 10 seconds or less. You know, they did $250 million in sales in just over one year, thanks to my sister-in-law. Number eight, and probably the best one of all time, was the Ronco GLH Formula Number 9 Spray-On Hair. All right? Now, I'm not going to ask how many of you purchased that. Some of you, I can suspect, maybe you at least tried it. All right? But you remember a gentleman by the name of Ron Popeil, pulled random people from the audiences actually during these infomercials who were follically challenged and suddenly their bald spots were covered in spray paint. He took this out and he sprayed their heads and it appeared as if they had hair. You probably aren't surprised to know that in 2007, uh, his company, Ron Papil's company, went bankrupt. <laughs> no doubt, right? Now there's one infomercial uh, that caught my, has caught my attention actually recently more th- than uh, one time. And that is the infomercial for an exercise program known as Insanity. Anybody seen that? Uh, Some of you have done it, all right? Yeah, okay. I know we got some whoos. I don't know if that's because you've done it or because you've seen the infomercial. Here's what the Insanity website says, though. The Insanity workout might just be the hardest fitness program ever put on DVD. Your personal trainer, Sean T., will push you past your limits with 10 Insanity Workout Disc Packs with plyometric, whatever that means, drills on top of nonstop intervals of strength, power, resistance, and ab and core training moves. No equipment or weights needed. Just the will to get the hardest body you've ever had. Now, i got to tell you, just the other night when I woke up, I happened to see Insanity. I watch that infomercial, and I look at those results, and I think to myself, self, that could be you. (laughs) But I know, see, because I'm 46 years old, right? I'm smart, kids. I I know this stuff. I know that you don't just get that body just by doing that workout for 60 days. I'm smart. I know this, all right? I've fallen for some of these infomercials before. I know that there are things that you have to give up. There are things that you have to do and things that you can't do. There are things you should eat and there are things you can't eat. I know these things. And so I've decided that at least for right now, I'm not willing to do that. And so I turn to another channel real quickly so I can get that out of my mind. And I'm sad for just a brief moment until I see the next infomercial, which covets my fancy and I move in that direction. You know, I was taken back as I thought about that this week. 
I was taken back to an encounter that Jesus had with a man right here in Mark chapter 10 who had a very similar experience. He thought he knew what he wanted, but when he found out what the cost was of what he thought he wanted, he was very sad. In fact, all the people who have ever encountered Jesus in the Gospels, if you were to look back at all the encounters, everyone that encountered Jesus Uh, This man is the only one who went away worse than when he came. And yet he had so much in his favor, not too unlike some of us that are in this room uh, today. And I want to look at his encounter. If you're in Mark chapter 10, look down at verse uh, 17. Verse 17 says this, As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him. And, And we know from Luke and Matthew's account of this story that this guy was a young man and that he was a ruler. Probably a ruler in the synagogue, which was an especially a significant honor for a young man. And we also know that he was wealthy. If you look later on down there in the text, you're going to see that he owned a lot of property. The fact that this man actually ran up to Jesus, that he ran up to Jesus publicly and asked him the personal revealing question that he's about ready to ask him shows the man's uh, sincerity. He was not haughty or presumptuous at all, but he was humbly trying to determine how he could find satisfaction and how he could have this overwhelming need that he felt in his life met. And so he was obviously oblivious to what people around him might have thought about him. No doubt that there were people that were around him that knew who he was and they would have looked at him and they would considered him, they would have thought to, that he was a man who was religiously fulfilled. And I thought to myself this week, that's really not too unlike so many of us that find ourselves here in this particular place uh, today. There are people that know us and they think that we must be satisfied. After all, we're the people that go to church. We're the people that are religious people. And after many years as a uh, pastor, uh, person in ministry, I believe one of the greatest hindrances to a person coming into a personal, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ is, in fact, religion itself. It's this whole idea of religion. Outwardly doing all the right things. If we really were to investigate ourselves today, and fortunately, the technology does not yet exist for me to be able to put up on a screen exactly what's in your heart right now, exactly what's in your mind. But if it were, probably some of you said, I'm going to get up out of bed, I'm going to take a shower, I'm going to get in the car even though it's raining and it's cold and I would rather stay in this warm bed this morning. I'm going to do that because this is what I do. This is a religious experience for me. Outwardly, I do all the right things, but inside, I am dead. Obviously, this guy knew that something was missing in his life. He didn't know the answer to the question that people have been asking since the beginning of time. Where do I go when I die? Is there a life after death? And if so, how can I get it? And so the text goes on to say, as he was setting on a journey, he he ran up to Jesus and he knelt before him and he asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You notice that he certainly had respect for Jesus. He knelt down and he called him good teacher. And by calling him teacher, it indicated that he certainly had a respect for Jesus. But there is no indication whatsoever that he believed him to be the promised Messiah and the Son of God. Most likely he was familiar with Jesus' teaching. Most likely he'd heard about Jesus' miracles uh, that he had performed. 
And so this young man assumed that this Jesus might possibly know something about eternal life. And so he comes to him to ask this significant question. I think it really sums up well how many people feel about Jesus in our world today. There are many religions, there are many uh, movements uh, that put Jesus in that same category as a good teacher. In fact, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe uh, you look at Jesus similarly to the way that people look at Mahatma Gandhi or like Dr. Martin Luther King or Mother Teresa. They're good leaders. They're eloquent speakers. They're great examples. But the bottom line is that Jesus was not just a great example. He wasn't just an eloquent speaker. He wasn't just a good teacher. He was the savior of the world. And so look at Jesus' response to this man's title of good teacher, verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He was a great teacher, but he is obviously far more than just a great teacher. He is the God that came to this earth to be the savior of the world. And so Jesus basically says to him, don't call me good unless you think that I'm God because only God is good. And if you don't think I'm God, then don't call me good because there's only one good person and that's God. If I'm not him, then don't call me good. Now don't miss the point. Many do. We, we tend to think on a scale of a really bad person to a really good person, don't we? You have in your mind who really good people are and who really bad people are. And as long as there are people that we consider just to be a little bit worse than us, then we're good. We're okay. Sure, there are those who are really good, and we might not be as good as them, but as long as we're not as bad as those bad people, then on a scale of good and bad, we tend to fall on the good side and we tend to think that everything's okay. Here's the problem with that logic, and the rich young ruler is going to find this out in just a few moments, really, that Romans 10, Paul said uh, in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that there is no one that is righteous, not even one person that is righteous. You see, you may get on those scales and you may think, well, I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as her. And so as long as I, but the problem is you're not good. And so Jesus doesn't respond immediately by showing him the way of salvation. That's probably what I would have done. I would have gotten out my little friendly track and I would have walked him through and drawn some little pictures for him to help him understand. I mean, after all, I'm Jesus, but Jesus doesn't do that because he understood the man was missing an essential quality. He lacked the sense of his own sinfulness. And Jesus had to point that out. So he said to the young man in verse 19, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. No words in scripture would have been more familiar to this young ruler than those words. But again, he missed Jesus' point. Just as he failed to recognize that the one to whom he spoke was himself God and the source of eternal life, he, he failed to see that those well-known commandments and all the other commandments could not provide the life to which they pointed. In fact, if a person were to perfectly fulfill the entire law, they were to do exactly what the law said, they would have eternal life. But the point which Paul wrote us, to us in Romans is that none of us have done that. There is none of us that are good. We're, we're all sinners, And so because no man is able to keep all of those commandments, then we've got a problem. Now, if you look at it at the face value, Jesus seems to have made a a huge error in this particular text. 
In fact, it might appear to some of you to say, well, that's what I've been taught. Somebody, somebody said that to me, that it's about keeping these commandments. It's about doing these things. And so here's Jesus not only seemingly not taking advantage of the moment of a person that comes up to him. Imagine in your cubicle tomorrow at work if somebody walks up to you and says, how can I have eternal life? You wouldn't go off on some long tangent, would you? You would share the gospel with them. You'd get out that gospel track that you tucked away in your wallet or in your purse. You'd get it out and you'd start walking them through it. And so seemingly here you're going, Jesus, here's a perfect opportunity. I mean, if there ever was an opportunity to make an eternal sale, here it is right here. And it also seems that Jesus might be teaching that our righteousness is gained by works. Here's the point of this whole text. Jesus knew that this man's heart was not ready to believe in him. Just as the hearts of many people who express great interest in him are not ready to believe. You see, the man had a deep longing for something important in his life that he knew was missing. He obviously had frustration and anxiety and he longed for peace and joy and assurance. He wanted the inner blessings, the Old Testament associated with spiritual life. And he he longed for God's blessings, but he didn't long for God. He wanted to know Uh, what good things he should do, but he didn't want to know the one who is good. And so verse 20 says, and he said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. That wouldn't be, by the way, too unlike what some of us might say, would it? Some of us, if you're like me, where you grew up going to church, I don't remember not going to church on Sunday morning. If you've ever, if you grew up like that, and you've ever had one of those Sunday mornings where you're sick and where you're in bed, I don't even know what's on TV on Sunday morning. Do you? I don't. I mean, ever since I was a little boy, I have grown up going to church, and I've known the things I should do and the things that I shouldn't do. And so I find myself in this particular story saying, if I would have had this encounter with Jesus, I might have said something very similarly. I might have said, I've done all these things since I was just a little bit of bitty boy. Not murdered anybody. And yet remember, he was talking to the one, he didn't realize it, to the one who said, if you have anger in your heart towards somebody, you just like you've committed murder. If you have wanted something that's not yours, it's as if you have stolen. We're going to talk about those things, by the way, in a few weeks when we start our series, Politically Incorrect Statements That Jesus Made. Here's what Jesus was basically saying uh, to him. After answering those questions and Jesus saying to him, have you done all of these things? If you haven't done all of these things, then you're not good enough. And even if you've broken them one time, you're not good enough. The man responds, he basically says, look, I've gone to church all my life. I haven't smoked. There's never been any alcohol, no drugs, no sex outside of marriage. I love my mom and dad. And I don't even hang out with people that do those things. I am a good person. Now tell me something else that I need to do. Because I want this thing called eternal life. Here's the problem. He was not looking for what God needed to do for him, but for what he still needed to do for God. You see, that's true of many of us who grew up in legalistic environments, isn't it? That we're always looking for the next thing that we need to do rather than who we need to be. And like most Jews of his day, and like most people in all times and cultures, he believed his destiny was in his own hands, and and that if his life was going to improve, if he was going to have eternal life, then it would be by his own effort. And all he wanted from Jesus was another commandment. 
Just give me another thing to do. I talked with a guy just this week. I sat at a lunch table with him, and I gave him the gospel as simply as I could. And he said, I know, but there's got to be something else that I need to do. And I said, really, there's not. And that's the problem right there, because you think you need to do something more when Jesus says, I've done it all. I've done it all. It's not about keeping these things. It's not about what you know. It's all about me. He wasn't ready to accept the fact that he was a sinner. And yet the Apostle Paul said in a verse that's familiar to many of you, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and missed the mark. You see, we don't really come into a saving relationship with Jesus until we realize that we are lost and hopeless without him. And I want you to hear this morning that I don't care if you've grown up in church. I don't care if you've sat here in this auditorium for a few years and you've listened to the word of God being opened up and you've bought into the idea that you're a Christian because you go here because of all these things that you've done, because you grew up in a Christian home and you've always gone to church and because you prayed a prayer at vacation Bible school. And by the way, I don't make fun of this when I say this, that you don't even remember that your mom or your dad told you that you prayed, but there's been no change in your life, let me tell you this morning emphatically, that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel in its very essence says, there is nothing that is good inside of me. I am desperate. I am hopeless without Jesus. And unless I place my trust in him alone as my savior, I will be eternally disappointed. That's the gospel. You see, we don't just add Jesus to our lives. He is our life. And so I say it very often to people like this, that Jesus plus anything else equals sadness slash disappointment slash eternal disappointment. But Jesus plus nothing else equals everything. In fact, Jesus said it in the Gospels several times. Luke chapter 9, verses 24 and 25, Luke wrote, Jesus saying, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is it profited, what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and he loses or forfeits himself? See, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's not about how good you are. It's not about how good I am. Because I know me. And at the end of the day, I'm not very good. At the end of the day, I know some of you, and you're really not very good. You are at moments, but you are not good enough. You are not the good one. There is only one good one, and that is God. Our sin has separated us from him. And this rich young ruler was saying, I've done all of these things. Tell me to do one more thing. And I promise you, if you'll just tell me one more thing to do, one more thing to add to my resume, then I'll do it. I love verse 21. In fact, verse 21 is probably, uh, certainly one of my favorite verses in this particular account, Mark's accounting of this particular encounter that Jesus had uh, with this rich young ruler. Look at verse 21 with me. It says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. I love that phrase. Jesus felt a love for him. You may recall that we have seen in each of the encounters we've studied over the last uh, several weeks that that Jesus has compassion. He, he is gentle. He's kind to those who, who genuinely want truth. 
And I want to say to you this morning, as one of your leaders, I, I want that characteristic in my life. I really do. I want it in my life. I want it in my ministry as a pastor. As I encounter those people who are desperately looking for answers to life's most important questions, I want to love those people. I love that. Picture with me. Here, here is the God of the universe, right? Not just another sinner that's talking to the rich young ruler, and so he replies, I love you, man. You know, sinner to sinner, right? I mean, you're a sinner, but so am I, and so I love you. Come here. Give me a bear hug. No, this is, this is Jesus, part of the Trinity, the God of the universe, who the text says looks at this man, this rich young ruler asking these questions, and the text says, I, I love, Jesus loved him. I want to love people like that. Do you? I'm convinced that many of us, we simply get annoyed when somebody doesn't look like us or when somebody doesn't talk like us or somebody doesn't share the same opinions on social issues that we share or at this particular season of the year when they have differing political views. Have I struck a nerve yet? You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because I'm on Facebook, right? I never give a status update, but I'm always lurking right below the scenes, all right? Right below the surface, I'm watching, I'm listening. And I really believe that any pastor right now who wants to understand and know people and know where people's hearts are and what they're thinking about would do well at least to read. I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing every minute of every day. Trust me, it's boring. You really don't want to know. But I do want to know what you're doing, actually. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Are you annoyed by those people that don't agree with you? Do you find it very difficult to have a conversation with somebody who supports a different candidate or has a different uh, view on a particular social issue? And you're going to find in just a few weeks, by the way, when we get into this series, Politically Incorrect Statements of Jesus, that Jesus was just the opposite. I think Jesus loved to engage with people who disagreed with him. You know why? Because Jesus recognized those are the very people, those are the very people that need me. They are dead man walking, as it says in Ephesians 2. They are desperately lost. They're the people that need the truth that I bring. And I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And so I believe Jesus went out and sought those people out. People like Zacchaeus that everybody said, not only is he a short man, but he doesn't really know anything. And by the way, he steals from people. and he does. Jesus said, I'm coming to your house. I'm going to go hang out with you today. And I believe that's why the text says that Jesus loved people. Let me tell you this. In fact, I want to show you this on video. That there is a tremendous effect in a person's life when they have an encounter, not only with a God who loves them, but with people who actually love them and accept them right where they are. Incredible things happen uh, in lives. In fact, watch this video now. Faith started for me um, in high school, and it didn't start for my parents, it didn't really start um, 
through their upbringing. Um, they actually kind of left me to discover truth on my own. My dad grew up and is still uh, an agnostic. He, he believes there's a God, but he doesn't know um, which God or what that God is like. Um, my mom is, is socially Buddhist, so around holidays she kind of takes part in the, the Buddhist traditions, but she, she doesn't take it as her own genuine faith. Um, so that kind of left me to uh, fend for my own and kind of figure out what I believe, which really was a huge gift. Before I knew Jesus, um, life was about me, everything was about me. Um, my relationships with my parents, my friendships, um, my girlfriends, my schooling, the things that I did, they're really about me. Um, I kind of thought that girls and sex were kind of the end-all be-all, that that was kind of what I needed to pursue the ultimate pleasure in life. In high school, I met my best friend. Um, his name was Joel. And I remember going over to his house for the first time. He had uh, um, four brothers, and so we were just playing football. That relationship bloomed into something a lot more than just playing football. Um, in my struggles in high school with girls, there was one point where I asked them a question, um, what is love? I just wanted to know. Uh, and that was the first time I ever uh, read scripture out of a Bible, actually. He, he pulled out um, his Bible and turned to 1 Corinthians 13. Um, and it really blew my mind that something so poetic and something so ideal and true um, could be in something that I didn't believe to be true, the, the, the Bible. And so after a lot of research, um, I, I read a lot of books, I wanted to figure out, okay, this, this Jesus person, is there truth in him? I, I came to a point where I thought about Jesus and I, I figured out I, I couldn't deny him. I couldn't I couldn't come up with a logical, reasonable argument to claim that he didn't exist. Um, and so there was a night, um, my uh, my freshman year of college, where I I told God, I I can't deny you anymore. There's nothing that I can do but believe in you. There's nothing that I can do but claim you as truth. The realization, the understanding of what Jesus did um, for the world um, and, and what he came to this world to do to, to save people like me, um, my focus changed and my direction started to change. And there's still moments of weakness. There's still moments where the, uh, the me monster kind of wants to come out and then this unnatural, just supernatural, out of this world, peace and understanding overtakes that. Um, and I believe that to be the peace and the, uh, the truth and the joy of Jesus. My name is Trung and this is my story. Well, some of you have had the opportunity to meet Trung and Sadie. And uh, I'm telling you this, I'm glad that there was a friend that he had in high school that loved him, that cared about him. 
that didn't just simply look at Trung and go, well, he doesn't believe like me, and, you know, his mom's a Buddhist and his dad's an agnostic, and stay away from that kid. I'm glad that there was somebody that said, I like him. I love him. Come over to my house, play football with my brothers and I. And next thing you know, here he is years later testifying of his belief in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus loved him. Verse goes on to say, verse 21, and he said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all that you possess and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus was simply saying this, If you truly desire eternal life, prove your sincerity by selling all your possessions and giving what you have to the poor. And in fact, if he truly lived up to the Mosaic command to love his neighbor as himself, he'd be willing to do exactly what Jesus was just commanding him to do. His willingness to obey that command, by the way, would not merit or earn him salvation, but it would be evidence that he desired salvation above everything else as a priceless treasure, a pearl of great value for which no sacrifice would be too great. So here's what Jesus basically said to this rich young ruler. He said to him, uh, go sell your stuff and invest in heaven and follow me. We would say it like this in the day in which we're living. Uh, We would say, take your car, take your house, take your furniture, take your new LED TV, your iPad, your vacation home, put it all on Craigslist or eBay, and then give all the money that you get after the fees to the poor. Do that. And some of you might say, well, I could give it all away. I could give everything away. That's fine with me. Is it really? You might say, if the house were on fire, I'm okay. If I lost lost everything, uh, I would be totally okay, except for there's a couple things that I might want to grab and take out of there. Not just my Bible, but of course, just a, of course, I want my Bible, right? But there's a few other things that I might want to have, a few possessions that I simply cannot live without. Well, there you have it. There's your idol. There's the thing that ultimately is what you worship. What is the most important thing in your life? By the way, we'll talk out of this text at a, at a, at a time in the future, but I, I want to say this to you. Oftentimes we don't realize that we have idols until we're faced with the prospect of losing them. And when we're faced with the prospect of losing something, we recognize very clearly and maybe for the first time that we really do have idols. We really do worship things, and it's not just Jesus. Look at the rich young ruler's response to Jesus' statement, verse 22. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. I think those are tragic words uh, to read in this particular text. He walked away from an encounter with the one who could actually bring him real life. In fact, if you think about it this way, he was actually face-to-face with the one who could give him eternal life, who could bring real life, who in just a very short period of time was going to suffer and bleed and die on a cross. He was with the one that could bring him life as John described it. And when John said that Jesus came to have life, life to the max, life to the full. This guy said no to all of this so that he could keep his vacation home and so that he could keep his rental properties. You see, here's the problem. He only wanted Jesus as an addition. 
He didn't want Jesus alone. He wanted to add Jesus to the things that he, that he already possessed and kind of keep it up there right on the mantle or right on the bookshelf with the other things. And this stands in stark contrast to a man that we talked about several weeks ago, a wee little man named Zacchaeus, doesn't it? You'll remember the response of Zacchaeus after his encounter with Jesus. He had lots of money that he had gotten from others in an unscrupulous manner. He needed to repay it, but the law permitted him to do so in a reasonable way. But Zacchaeus didn't even quibble over the terms of the Mosaic law. He offered to pay the highest price because his heart had truly been changed. He recognized that he had gained spiritual wealth and he understood for the first time that earthly treasure does not compare to what he had gained in Jesus and certainly what he had gained in questionable ways. And so so Zacchaeus said, I'm going to give it all away. I'm just going to give it all away. It's as if he said, I have Jesus, I don't need anything else. And yet some people, and maybe you are one of those people, and please don't look down the aisle or don't right now begin praying for the person that you think that's in the room that really needs to grasp this morning the truth of John 10. It could very well be you. Because some people, some people like us that are in this room today, we simply want to add Jesus to our life as an ornament. We want a relationship with God only to the extent that it doesn't inconvenience us and it doesn't take us off the throne of our lives. And I say to you again, that is not the gospel. If you believe that you, if you believe what you like in the gospel, I quoted this to you several weeks ago, and you reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe in, but yourself. And so Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now that expression, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, was a Jewish colloquialism for the impossible. In fact, most Bible scholars believe it was probably a modified form of a Persian expression for impossibility, that it was easier for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle, as quoted in the Talmud. Being the largest animal, the camel, known in Palestine, the camel was simply substituted for the elephant. I find that that many of us like verses like this. You say, well, why is that? Well, I'm glad you asked. The reason why we like these verses is because we don't consider ourselves to be rich, right? There aren't too many of you that I said, okay, how many of you are really rich would go, that's me, that's me. Or you go, no, no, no. Even if you are, you go, no, 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 not me. And so we like that. And I don't know if you've been paying attention to these little debates that they've been having on TV and and in the media, but it is really popular right now, isn't it, to bash rich people. In fact, it's really popular to put up a sign and go, I'm the 99%. You know, it's the 1% over there that's really evil. That's really popular. But it really all depends on the standard that you use to determine whether or not you're wealthy, doesn't it? In fact, when we look back at the history of the world, do you realize that it is very easy to classify even the poorest in this room this morning as the rich? Go spend a week with our friends in Kenya. And then come back and you tell me if you're poor. And let me remind you that you don't have to be rich to have money as your idol. You can be poor and you can be obsessed with money. 
You can be obsessed with trying to get rich, trying to get the things that you don't need and you cannot afford. You realize that roughly 25% of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels is about money, possessions, finances, and wealth. Why? Because he knows that we are prone to trust in those things rather than trust in him. See, some of us here this morning are similar to the wealthy young ruler in that we are genuinely seeking the answers to life's tough questions. Who is Jesus? What is my responsibility to him? Is there really life after death? And if there is, how do I get it? And I fear, though, that there are some that think that you've had a real encounter with Jesus when, in fact, you have not. You've simply added Jesus to your life. You've not died to yourself. Maybe for you, the best way to describe it is that you've added him to your life as an insurance policy. If I end up not really being as good as I thought I was, and I end up standing before a holy God who demands something else than my goodness and my presence, then I'm simply going to whip out of my pocket my get-out-of-hell-free card. That's what it means to you to have a relationship with Jesus. Don't ask me to change my life. Don't expect me to reorder my priorities. I don't want to be inconvenienced with those things. I simply want to add Jesus to my life. Friends, don't miss the the point here. The point is that that's exactly what the rich young ruler wanted to do. He did not want to be inconvenienced. He wanted eternal life. He didn't want anything to change. He just simply wanted to add Jesus to his life. And if that's you this morning, I don't know what you have, but you have not accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have not had a real life-changing encounter with Jesus. In reality, in fact, if that's you, you should leave this place this morning sad, just like the wealthy young ruler when he walked away from his encounter with Jesus. You've added Jesus to your life, but you've not trusted him alone. Verse 26 says they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it's impossible, but not with God. For with all things, God, for all things are possible with God. You see, again, he knew that in just a few weeks, he was going to suffer and bleed and die on a cross as the payment for man's sin. And so, therefore, with him, those things were possible. God does the impossible, in fact, in conversion. He radically reorders our human values. It's impossible for any human being to be saved alone, but Ephesians 2, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's really a tragic story. It's a tragic story. That this man came face to face not only with the gospel, but with the gospel in flesh. And even though he had that direct encounter with Jesus, he walked away sad and grieved, holding on to the things that don't really matter when just in front of him was everything. I think that's the tragedy not only in this story, but that's the tragedy of so many lives and churches all across the triangle this morning. Auditoriums that are filled with people that go through religious experiences, religious religious rituals on a weekly basis. 
And yet when we get right down to it in the story of this encounter with the rich young ruler, we come face to face with the fact that for many of us, we've simply bought into the idea that the gospel is me plus Jesus. It's Jesus plus something else. When in reality, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And I pray that if you find yourself in that position this morning, I pray that you would not allow your pride, your arrogance to keep you from spending eternity in heaven with Jesus. It's only when you come face to face and you encounter Jesus for who he really is that your life is transformed and changed. And I will say this to you this morning in closing of this series. If there has been no radical change in your life, you may have prayed a prayer. You may have gone to church all your life. You may be a really good person. But you one day will be eternally disappointed because you are trusting in that which cannot save. You're trusting in yourself. And my prayer for you is that just like the rich young ruler, you won't walk away sad and grieved, even though the gospel was right there, but that you will trust in Christ alone as the Savior from your sin. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Before I pray this morning, just as we close out this series, I, I, I really feel like I want to do this for, uh, for, for the ability that, that I would have to pray for some of you. If you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed right before I pray, I'm, I'm wondering if there's somebody in the auditorium this morning that you would say, you know, I've been sitting here for several weeks and I've listened to these encounters with Jesus and what it means to have a radically changed life. I've seen stories. I've seen testimonies uh, on the screen. And there's been no radical transformation that's taken place in my life. And I'm, I'm, I'm becoming convinced that either uh, I don't have Jesus at all or that something is really wrong in my life and I'm lost. If that's you this morning, I, I want you just, while well, nobody else is looking around, I, I want you just to simply uh, slip up your hand and slip it back down. Just allow me to see that so that I can pray for you as I close this morning. Anybody? Don't be like the rich young ruler. Don't walk away sad and grieved because it's too radical of a thing to let Jesus have total control of your life and come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't do that. These are the most important questions of life that we've dealt with. Who is Jesus and what is my responsibility to him? If he's God... If he loved me enough to send his son Jesus to die on a cross for my sin, what is my response to that? That is the greatest question of life and determines where we spend all of eternity. Anybody else that I can pray for this morning as I close? Slip your hand up, slip it right back down. Father, I pray for those uh, that God are so deceived. We, we recognize, Lord, that unless radical transformation takes place in our life, we are still dead. We can look into that casket and say that person is alive, but spiritually speaking, we are dead. And God, you know my heart because you know it is my greatest fear that I would speak week after week after week to people whose ears have become deaf to the true gospel in thinking they've got something and so because they've got something they've got the real thing when in, when in actuality they are to be eternally disappointed 
Lord, I pray that you wouldn't give Satan victory. I pray that you would use your spirit to move in hearts, to bring conviction in lives where there needs to be conviction. For that man, that woman that thinks they've got it all together and everything's okay, God, use your spirit even right now to convict them and show them that it's not okay. And that one day they'll be eternally disappointed unless they trust in you alone as their Savior. God, thank you for the, these encounters which were recorded in the Gospels. They show us your humanity, your compassion, your love for mankind. They set an example for how we interact with those that are seeking, that are searching, that are desperately lost. And most importantly, they point us to the gospel. They point us to Jesus. So we're thankful for that. Thankful for these examples of these encounters. God, help us to know and understand that you are still in the business of transforming and changing lives just like you did during those three years of ministry while you walked on the planet. God, change lives in this place, change lives in this community as a result of our testimony, we pray. In Jesus' name.